Thank you so much to Sarah and the worship team. It's always good to, uh, to worship the Lord's music and uh, worship with you all, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, those, some of you that I know, some of you that I don't, but uh, as, uh, as Sarah said, it's, it's just it's a real privilege for me to be here, uh, and uh, I appreciate uh, you all opening up the pulpit to, to allow me to preach and to, to bring, bring God's word uh, this morning. So uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is, is a very, very famous passage uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, and it actually occurs inside of a famous set of teachings that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, uh, and it contains all kinds of, again, very famous passages, uh, teachings of Jesus, things like the, the Beatitudes, things like the Lord's Prayer, uh, the command that Jesus offers to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, and today I want to look at another very, very famous section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus' command to judge not, lest ye be judged, or judge not that you, might, that, that you be not judged. Uh, probably some of you, all of you have heard this command in, in, in some context. Uh, people quote this command all the time. You don't have to be a Christian to know this command and, and to hear it quoted. Uh, Christians over the years have interpreted and applied this command in a lot of different ways. Uh, some Christians have thought that uh, this command means that Christians should refrain from any kind of government work, that they shouldn't be in positions of judgment, that they shouldn't be magistrates. Uh, other Christians have, have thought that this passage really means that we only refuse to judge people's eternal destiny, their eternal salvation, but sort of everything else is, is in bounds. Other folks have, have said that uh, this means that Christians should refrain from any moral evaluation at all, that we really shouldn't be discerning sort of good from evil. Uh, so... Uh, Today, I don't necessarily want to play like theological whack-a-mole where we're going through all these different interpretations and trying to see how maybe each of them is a little bit uh, deficient, a little bit uh, not quite there. What I'd like to focus on is what this command really says to us today. Uh, and so the framework that I want to use for understanding that is, um, is this. Uh, when Jesus is telling his disciples not to judge, he, he's not saying don't make any kind of moral evaluations or moral judgments. Don't discern good from evil. It, in a lot of ways, it's almost impossible. And, and in fact, verse 6, which we're not going to spend very much time on, uh, but we'll read uh, the last verse in our reading. Jesus is inviting his disciples to actually discern between good and evil, to understand when and how to present the good news of the gospel uh, to, to others. What Jesus is condemning in this passage is the natural inclination of the human heart towards judgmentalism. And that's what I want to focus on today. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll read the passage, and we'll talk a little bit more about judgmentalism and what Jesus has to say about it and how we can be free of this. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I, uh, I thank you for this morning. I, I thank you for your word uh, Lord, that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us your spirit, uh, make us attentive to your word, uh, apply it to our lives, that we would be uh, not only hearers of the word, but, but also doers of the word. 
Uh, Lord, give me your words as well. Uh, Help me to preach as I ought to uh, and to handle your word rightly. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I'm going to read the passage now. Uh, Again, it's uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is what we'll be looking at. Uh, You can find that on a Bible app or in the the Pew Bibles. Um, This is Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to understand what this passage means for us today, uh, we need to look at a few things. Uh, First of all, we need to understand the principle that Jesus is building this command from. How how is he understanding this command? Second, we need to understand what judgmentalism is, what it looks like, how it functions in our lives. Third, we need to understand why we are so inclined towards judgmentalism. Why does Jesus have to make an issue of this, uh, uh, coin a command about this? And fourth, we need to understand how we can legitimately help our brothers and sisters encourage one another onward uh, in Christ towards greater holiness without actually falling into this sin of judgmentalism. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to go through those four points, and uh, and Lord willing, uh, we'll, we'll have a much better understanding Uh, of what this passage is teaching. Uh, So first, the principle of the command. Uh, As I've already been talking about, the command for this passage is found in verse one, judge not that you might not be judged. And uh, Jesus then goes on to elaborate on this command in verse one, uh, starting in verse two. He says, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Uh, And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually reiterating a concept that uh, has shown up a few times in the Sermon on the Mount and already, and actually shows up a lot in scripture. Uh, I'll call it sort of the principle of divine reciprocity, okay? So uh, the idea here is that, for example, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, right? Uh, Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, because that's what your heavenly father does, right? Sending rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the Lord's prayer, when we pray that, we say, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The idea behind this is that God has done something for us. He has accomplished something for us uh, that we desperately need. And in response to what God has done, we follow his example. We, we, we give back what God has given to us uh, in joy. So, uh, and this, it's important to recognize that this responsiveness is, is, is not some sort of kind of causal, like, because I've forgiven someone, well, now I have something over on God, and he has to forgive me, right? Uh, it always starts with God's action first, and then responds with our response. Uh, that, that's how this sort of principle of divine reciprocity works. And so, uh, here's how this principle is being applied in the passage today. 
Jesus is saying that Christians recognize the deep sinfulness of their own hearts and the judgment that they are liable to apart from Christ and are therefore extremely gentle in morally evaluating others. I'll say that again, because that's, that's important. Christians recognize the deep sinfulness of their hearts and the judgment that they are liable to apart from Christ and are therefore extremely gentle in morally evaluating others. So we're gonna unpack this a little bit. And Jesus is unpacking this a little bit in this passage. Uh, to apply this principle, Jesus gives us a negative example. Right? A man who is blinded by the log in front of him, trying to remove a speck of sawdust from another man's vision. And if this seems pretty ridiculous and kind of cartoonish, uh, that's, that's sort of the point. Jesus is trying to kind of slap us in the face to say that this is, this is impossible. You can't actually do this. Uh, and he's, he's using this sort of cartoonish illustration to, to show us a truth about how most people, but not disciples of Christ, usually operate or shouldn't operate. Disciples of Christ shouldn't operate this way. Uh, we tend to minimize our own sinfulness. We don't see the log in our own eye, right? And we maximize our neighbor's sinfulness. We see the speck in their eye as a log, right? And that is, that minimization of our own sin, maximization of our neighbors, that's the essence of what we're calling judgmentalism today. Uh, so where do we see judgmentalism? Uh, what, what is this? Uh, it's funny, judgmentalism is something that you can see kind of all the time, and, and once you sort of have a lens to see this, you actually have to be a little bit careful to not become judgmental of judgmentalism because it's sort of so prevalent uh, in, our, uh, in, in people and in how people interact. But let me give you a few examples. Uh, so when you're driving, right, and somebody cuts you off, what do you think of that person? Uh, you might think that that person is the worst driver in America, that they're a menace to society, that they, their, their license should be taken away. You're like looking around for police officers, hoping that they get a ticket, right? Hoping that somebody else saw that and justice can be done. But when you cut off somebody in traffic, well, that was, that was complicated, right? Like I was, I was kind of trying to merge and I didn't see the guy and I, I, don't, I don't normally do that. I just, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of having a bad day or I'm, I'm above average driver, just sometimes I make some mistakes, right? We minimize our sin, maximize the sin of others. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, there was a big scandal where uh, a bunch of celebrities, I guess, were bribing officials in Ivy League schools to get their kids into these schools, even though they couldn't actually, uh, the kids couldn't get in by their own merit. And, uh, and there, <laughs> there was a tremendous amount of outcry about this and, and schadenfreude, sort of joy in seeing these celebrities get kind of knocked down a peg. Um, but when you actually look at the data on cheating, for example, uh, you know, 59% of high school senior of high schoolers admit to having cheated on an exam in the last year. 34% of them have done it multiple times, right? So when celebrities cheat, they're terrible people and deserve to have the book thrown out them. When we cheat, well, it's it's complicated, right? That's uh, there's there's a lot of good reasons for that, right? Uh, one more, when somebody gossips about you. Right? And, and you hear about it, uh, and, uh, and you figure out that they're doing this, how do you feel? Right? Well, th this person is committing character assassination. They're an awful person. Uh, this, is, this is a disaster. Right? When you gossip about somebody, well, I was just venting. Right? That's, that's, that's all that was. 
Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a Christian evangelist back in the 70s named uh, Francis Schaeffer, and he would, he would interact with these uh, skeptics, people who didn't believe in God or, or believe in Christianity. And he had this, he had this interesting thought experiment that he, would, that he would run with them, and it's based on this passage in Romans 2.1, which is uh, sort of saying a similar thing to what we've been talking about. The passage says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So Schaefer used to say to these skeptics, imagine that you die and you're standing before the judgment seat of God. And, uh, and you as a skeptic say, well, listen, okay, I, I get now that you're real and I get that all this was sort of binding, but listen, like when I was out there, I just didn't think I had enough evidence for this. I, I didn't read the Bible. So I probably broke a lot of these rules, but it's really unjust for you to like hold me accountable to these things that... I didn't think were real. And, uh, and Schaefer says, okay, so imagine God says, okay, I'm gonna be really, really fair here. All right, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, I'm not gonna judge you based on what's in the Bible. I'm not gonna judge you based on what you think about Jesus or me or anything like that. We're just gonna take a recording of every moral judgment that you've made of another person. And we're gonna set that list over here and then we're gonna go through your life and see how you're doing just based on your own standards. And, uh, and the point that, that Schaefer makes and the point that uh, Romans is making here is that nobody would stand up to that. E- even by our own standards, we fail. Uh, and, uh, and again, this is all a process of minimizing our own sinfulness, maximizing the sinfulness of our neighbors. And so, uh, and this is kind of the, the default mode that we're operating. Uh, and uh, because Jesus says in this, or he's making the point that there is this, there's this basic sort of blindness that exists inside of all of us. Uh, it's a blindness that's both sort of built into us. We don't necessarily create it, uh, but it's also a choice that we, that we actively make. Um, so uh, in Jeremiah 17.9, which is sort of a, a famous passage in the Old Testament, uh, it characterizes the human heart this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so th- this is the portion in which this, this judgmentalism, this, uh, 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 this, this negative sin is sort of built into our heart, right? We, we have been so compromised by our sin uh, that, that we actually even buy into our lies. Like we, we don't even recognize the depths to which we are doing this, uh, both to others and in a, inside of ourselves. Uh, if you've ever met somebody who does believe their own lies, it, it, is, uh, it is very, very sad to see. Uh, but the, the sadder thing and the point that the Bible is making is that really to some degree all of us do this. Uh, it's not just that person out there that believes their own lies, it, it's us inside that are believing our own lies. So there is a, there is a way in which it's kind of built into our hearts, uh, but there's also a way in which we are willing participants in this minimization of our own sin, maximization of the sin of others. Uh, And we do this because we are uh, always, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, uh, trying to reckon, trying to deal with the alienation that we experience from God. When you you are feeling bad about yourself, when you've maybe once again fallen into that sort of habitual sin that you struggle with, you've taken another drink, you've looked at that website that you don't want to, you've, you've You've blown up at your, uh, at your parents or, or at your children once again. How do you start to feel better about yourself? Right? One of the easiest ways to do that is to start comparing yourself with others. 
you know, at least I'm not like this person, right? Everybody does this, so I'm still kind of inside of the, the average sort of person, right? Maybe I'm even above average because I care about this, whereas other people maybe don't even care about this, right? And wh what are you doing when you're doing this? You're generating a case, right? You're in a courtroom and you're trying to defend yourself. And whether or not we want to admit it, we're really litigating our lives before God. There's this, there's this really fascinating interaction uh, in, Isaiah, in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter six, uh, where the prophet Isaiah is being called to his ministry. Uh, and, and so while he is praying in the temple, uh, Isaiah encounters God in, in a pretty unmediated way. He sees him high and lifted up with the seraphim around him. And, uh, and when Isaiah sees God like this, when he, when he sees God in this unmediated way, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. When Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God in a more unmediated way, right? Most of us live our lives in a way in which we don't necessarily encounter God like this, but when Isaiah encounters God like this, all of the justifications, all of the minimizations of his own sins that he's been using all of his life to sort of feel like he's kind of okay with this, they all just fly away. And, they're, and what is laid bare is the immense gap between his sin and God's holiness, between himself and who God is. And th that exposure that creates this radical contrast, it, it is, <laughs> uh, it's incredibly psychologically traumatic, actually. Uh, in fact, it's so traumatic that uh, in the encounter in Isaiah 6, God actually has to deal with his sin before anything else can happen. Uh, God sends one of the seraphim with a, with a burning coal to touch his lips to, make a, to, to pay for his sins because uh, Isaiah just can't do anything until this gap is dealt with. And this, this is getting at sort of why we are so prone to judgmentalism. Uh, like Isaiah, we're unable to live inside of that huge yawning tension, that gap that exists between God's holiness and our own sinfulness. And so to relieve that tension, to sort of minimize, we minimize our sin. Uh, and the judging that Jesus is rebuking in this passage is a very common tactic that we, that we uh, use to actually minimize our sin. Right? One of the easiest ways to feel like we're good, acceptable, and righteous is to find a person or a group of people that you can use to remind yourself and them of their sin and, by contrast, your righteousness. Even, we feel like even if we can't measure up to the holiness of God, at least we're better than these people. Uh, I used to work with law students at Pitt, and um, there, I was leading... I was leading a small group Bible study on anxiety, uh, which is you know, present a lot in, in law school. And, uh, and so I was asking them, what, what do you do when you have you know, a big test that is you know, maybe your whole grade for the semester that you're studying for? How do you, how do you deal with the anxiety of that? And every, th this wasn't a Bible study, uh, every person in the group had a list of 10 people that they knew in their class that they were smarter than. Some of them had a physical list, like they actually wrote down, here are 10 classmates that I know I'm smarter than. And so when they would get really anxious, what they would do is they would go through this list and say, well, at least I know I'm better than these people. At least I know that I'm, I'm gonna be able to fit inside of this curve because I'm smarter than this person. 
I mean, this is a problem, right? This is, this is a deep-seated issue uh, in our lives, and it's, and it's everywhere. So it raises the question, how do we actually remove the log from our own eye to help our brother and sister in Christ? Because we do actually need to encourage one another. We need to be building one another up. We need to be iron sharpening iron, right? How do we actually do this without falling into judgmentalism? What we need to do, uh, we need to do a few things. First, we need to actually face up to the judgment uh, that we're liable to. You know, in the process of this minimization of our sin, uh, what tends to happen is that when we do that, we also minimize the goodness and the grace of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, we, we were just saying, like, you made a way when there was no way, right? And, uh, and, and I think when we're in this process of judgmentalism and justification, the way that Christ made to save us, it, it doesn't seem that great, right? Like we're pretty good people, right? It may, maybe Christ just had to go like a little bit to, to get us saved. When we actually own up to our own sin and, and the gap that exists between us and God, we can truly praise God saying that you did make a way when there was no way. Uh, like Isaiah, I can, I can see that, that there is nothing that I can do, and I'm ruined apart from the grace and mercy of Christ. So we need to actually own up to the judgment that we are liable to. Uh, there's a, in, in Genesis 4, uh, it's the story of, of Cain and Abel, and Cain murdering his brother Abel. Uh, after Cain murders him, uh, he, he kind of moves on with his life, right? He, he sort of keeps working in his field, uh, and when God confronts him about where is your brother Abel, he says, I don't know where Abel is. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, just like us, Cain is sort of trying to minimize. He's trying to hide from his sin, to, to lie to God about it. But here is the thing. Uh, we can lie to other people. We can even lie to ourselves about our sin, but we, we can't actually lie to God about our sin. Uh, God says to Cain afterwards, he says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Its call for justice couldn't be minimized or ignored. It couldn't be, couldn't be lied about. Our own sin, like Cain's, cries out for a response. And the only way that we can actually own up to that, the only way that we can do that without experiencing just total psychological trauma is recognizing that when we actually see our sin in total, we also see that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice, for, for vengeance in a lot of ways. Uh, Jesus' blood, though, though even more innocent than Abel's, cries out for mercy and for grace. Uh, there's a great passage in, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 24, where uh, the, the writer is kind of contrasting what it's like in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Uh, and uh, and he, he finishes with, by saying this, for, for Christians, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. And if that were not amazing enough, Jesus actually goes to the cross on our behalf, fully knowing our hearts, right? Uh, Jesus has seen the depths of our wickedness. He's not surprised by anything that we've done. He's not surprised by, by who we are. Uh, and even after seeing that, he chose to love us and save us by going to the cross and giving us mercy instead of wrath. And if you're able to actually take that to heart, 
Uh, now the need to sort of justify yourself, the need to prove yourself before others and before God, it, it's gone. Because Jesus Christ has already accomplished it. He's done everything that you need to. The alienation from God has been dealt with. We have this unshakable identity in Christ now. We don't need to defend our reputations to minimize our sin, maximize the sin of our neighbors, to feel good about ourselves. And at that point, when you're at this point, you're actually free. You're actually free to see yourself clearly and seek to remove the log from your own eye. And you're also free to not use other people's faults as like a buttress for your own shaky ego. You can simply seek to help them take the speck out of their eye because you, you really care about them, because you love them, because you're trying to follow this command. Still, uh, this is gonna take time, and, and this process of, of, of living into this identity that we have in Christ is, is, a, is a lifelong process that we, that we take steps in, in repentance and faith. So in the meantime, how do you know whether or not you're sort of slipping back into judgmentalism? How do you know whether you're, you're, you're going back towards this? And there are a few kind of signs that you'll, you'll start to understand if you, uh, uh, there's, a few, there's a few signs of this that you can, you can kind of use to diagnose yourself, right? Um, when you, when, you do exp when you do see your own sin, are you quick to sort of explain it away based on your circumstances, right? I don't know, you, you'd be mad too if you had my boss, right? Uh, you're starting to minimize your sin. Do you find yourself hiding your sin from others, trying to sort of preserve this kind of respectable image, right? Uh, you're using others' opinions of you to feel good about yourself. You're still sort of building your case in court. Um, when someone brings up sin in your life, do you become really defensive, right? Must they perfectly approach you with the proper mix of gentleness and truth, timing and care, or you just, you just will not listen, right? Your sensitivity indicates this, this shakiness that exists in, uh, in, in, your, in your identity in Christ. Or are you just downplaying the significance of your sin, right? Thinking it's, it's just kind of this little issue over in the corner of your life, pretending that your sin can be kind of managed and it's not a big deal. If you're falling into any of these traps, you're in the game of minimizing your own sin, maximizing the sin of others, and you're probably either falling back into judgmentalism or you're just kind of waiting for the right person. But friends, we don't have to do this anymore, right? Jesus knows us to the very core of our being, and he has loved us and brought us into his kingdom that is beyond anything that we could hope or imagine. His sprinkled blood cries out for mercy and for grace. We don't have to hide, we don't have to minimize, we don't have to justify. Look to him and be free. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for oh, the, the incredible freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, Lord, that, that you have given us uh, this, this unshakable identity. Uh, that though you saw us while we were still sinners, uh, while we were still in rebellion against you, you loved us, you saved us, you sanctified us, and you called us your own. Lord, make that more and more uh, the, the bedrock of our lives. Uh, make that the ground note of our identity. And help us to live as those who are able to encourage one another, to call one another to righteousness and holiness because we love each other and we love you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.